And we are live. All right. Well, welcome, everyone, to Connected Learning TV. This is the second webinar of our February 2015 series titled By Any Media Necessary, Sustaining, Scaffolding, and Sustaining Participatory Politics. My name is Rafi Sarkisian, and I'm one of the graduate researchers with the MAP team. Of the, that's the Media, Activism, and Participatory Politics Research Group at USC. And I'm Diana Lee, another one of the MAP researchers um, at USC, and will be the host for today. Cool. So I'll be leading today's discussion, and Diana will be fielding our live audience for some interactive questions. So throughout this series on Connected Learning TV, we're chatting with a variety of organizations and individuals who are harnessing digital media to scaffold and sustain efforts we call participatory politics. If you're watching this, please take a moment to share it with your network. Um, in our first webinar, we talked about defining what success looks like in modern-day civics and participatory politics. Today, we'll be talking with another great group of folks about specific ways to pursue that success. Before we dive into our chat, let's go over a couple quick details. Um, to those watching live right now, we welcome your comments and questions either via the Twitter hashtag, um, by any media, or the Q&A feature that you should see within the video player. Um, is everybody hearing me OK? Um, or is there any feedback? We Good. can hear you. OK. Sorry, I'm getting a lot of feedback. Um, all right, so you can go through the Twitter hashtag Binding Media or the Q&A feature. Um, so before we begin, I'd like to give our guests a chance to introduce themselves. Um, so why don't I start with um, the first on my uh, on my uh, screen, so let's go with Alan. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Alan Linton. I'm a PhD student in political science here at the University of Chicago, uh, and I'm one of the leading members of the Black Youth Project's new media research team, which is thinking about participatory politics and civic education here in Chicago public schools. All right, next, let's go to Miriam. Can everybody hear me right here? Can you hear me OK? Yes, we can hear you. OK, perfect. Thank you. So my name is Miriam Mohideen. I live here in LA. And um, I have been very involved in many interfaith organizations out here, as well as working for the Muslim Public Affairs Council, which is a public policy and advocacy organization that has a very primary focus on working with college students and youth and getting them involved with the political system and then just community organizing. OK. All right, cool. Let's go next to Nicole. Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole. Uh, I'm coming to you from Los Angeles. I am a postdoctoral researcher at the UCLA Graduate School of Education. Uh, I'm also a Connected Learning Ambassador for the National Writing Project and the coordinator of the UCLA Council of Youth Research, which helps young people uh, in Los Angeles become researchers of their own schools and communities uh, to raise their voices and address injustices in their communities. Cool. Thanks, Nicole. So let's go next to Talitha. Hi, I'm Talitha. I'm also in Los Angeles, so I want to connect with you folks who live here in LA. We should get a drink. Um, but I work for a jewelry company called The Giving Keys, and we provide jobs for people uh, primarily in Skid Row, transitioning out of homelessness. Um, and prior to that, I worked with the youth um, organization Invisible Children, engaging in politics 
and uh, really helping kiddos talk to their governor or senator or whoever about African issues. So. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for uh, those introductions. As you can all see, there's a good kind of uh, diverse uh, backgrounds that we have going on. So I think it'll feed really well into our questions for today. Um, so, so to start us off, um, it would be kind of great to have everybody share maybe one of the most difficult challenges you have faced or researched in any kind of political, social, or civics project. And anybody can kind of take the lead and start off. Uh, I can start us off. Um, so I work with uh, high school-aged youth uh, living in South and East Los Angeles who are interested in developing their own research questions and going through the research process of reading literature, developing uh, data collection tools, and then going out into the field and actually conducting research with uh, students, teachers, administrators, and community members uh, in order to get answers to the things that they care about most. Uh, and I've found that one of the things that uh, is a challenge for us is the perception among some adults that what our young people are doing is um, somehow cute or um, uh, kind of fun but not something to be taken seriously. So I've definitely seen instances where um, politicians, superintendents have tried to brush off some of the questions that our students ask or they assume that they haven't done the intense research that they have uh, on the issues that we're trying to talk about. Uh, and the adults will try to talk down to them or congratulate them for the work they're doing as an, as an exercise, but not seeing them as true civic agents or seeing them truly as um, engaged members of the community who need to be taken seriously. So we're constantly fighting that battle of um, showing everyone that citizenship does not start when students turn 18 and that young people uh, have many different ways of participating in the political process. Uh, a lot of that is through digital media. Uh, and finding ways to make sure that adults can uh, nurture and and respond to them instead of shunting them off to the side, which I think can frustrate them and make them feel less likely to be engaged in the process. I would echo what Nicole was saying, that our biggest challenge, we're working in schools with, you know, trying to build civic education and digital media platforms together. And the stigma around digital media and new media tools is really hard to overcome both from a teacher standpoint but also from a principal and administrative standpoint and so that's been really challenging empowering young people with the tools they're already using in the spaces they're at when so many adults are kind of down on these these platforms and areas. The other big challenge that we're at least running uh, into is you know not necessarily the seriousness of this but creating a space where young people feel empowered to lead these projects, that they're not having to worry about kind of the overarching eye of an adult telling them that they should be paying attention to this issue, when in fact the issues that may be important or resonate with young people primarily on the south and west sides in Chicago, communities of color, they may be in different areas, that they're not thinking of downtown central government, but kind of things that are happening around them, food deserts, uh, youth violence, unemployment, that there's some tension there about when students when you use these tools to speak on issues that they care about. So uh, we're trying to demystify that just because a, a student's on uh, Facebook or is sending a group message via Twitter or you know a photo campaign on Instagram, that it's not just you know pithy work to be dismissed, that these are the issues that they put a spotlight on 
and we should support them instead of fighting uh, teachers and students that want to push these issues. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think our biggest success at Invisible Children was we were able to get a bill passed um, through the U.S. government. I mean, Obama signed it into law, and there is engagement happening with um, U.S. troops stopping the violence of the Lord's Resistance Army. And we were told that that was the first time um, the U.S. has ever gotten involved in a military conflict because the people asked for it. Um, usually it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the primary people who are asking are kiddos, you know, people under 18, and they're not even voters, you know, but they're our future voters. Um, and I would say there were two interesting takeaways that are the future of that, um, you know, kind of engaging with politics. Number one is that it's a really slow process to get your politicians to listen to you, especially if you're going via letters. There's anthrax issues, and so your letter will take months to get on the desk of your senator or your congressman. Um, but they're all engaged in Twitter. And I personally hate Twitter, um, but we've heard from DC that that's what they're looking for, is for people to talk to them via Twitter, even Obama. Um, it's the best way to get a hold of them, because there's no phone number you can call to like tell Obama what you want. Um, and then also we had, to, we had to stop when we were trying to get this bill passed uh, with Senator Coburn, Dr. No, out of Oklahoma. He's famous for saying no to every bill ever. And um, in fact, we were told that this is the first time that he said no and we were able to convince him to change his mind. And what we did was insane. We had a group of young people camp out in front of his office for 11 days straight and tweet about it, and a lot of other people were tweeting about it, and then the local news started to pick up on it, and then the uh, flashing billboards, right, like the kind that can be changed on a dollar, or like on a dime's notice, like they started changing, like, Dr. No, please say yes, help these children in Central Africa, don't you care about child soldiers, and he said yes, and um, it, was, it was literally, and that's a whole other conversation about how one senator can hijack the will of the vast majority of Senate, you know, what the Senate and, in theory, their constituents want. Um, but he said yes, and that is pretty much the sole reason that this bill passed, and that's pretty much the sole reason why these U.S. troops are now in Central Africa, and they're, they're not going to move. Like, we've been told that they are um, beneficial to the area beyond just stopping the Lord's Resistance Army, and so the U.S. now is going to keep them there. Five years, ten years, we don't even know how long. Um, so Twitter and kiddos protesting out in front of the senator's office and getting billboards thrown up um, actually worked. So tell the teachers that. Um, well, I'd like to add, and I can only speak from my experience working with the um, American Muslim community. So there's been a lot of things that have happened over the last few years, and I mean, even just what happened last week is a testament to how much the community is changing in that you have the Muslim American community, which primarily about, what, 70% is immigrants, and so a lot of people coming into like the 70s and 80s were not very, were not politically active, were not 
participating really much in community or being part of their neighborhood. And that kind of built up into what we're facing now, like in the 90s and the 2000s, is that the first generation of youth, so people like my generation, are becoming more active and taking their identity and really like holding on to it, and that this American Muslims. And, um, Really getting active. Uh, what we're finding, though, is is one is one thing that we found, especially we were combating a lot of impact, was that because of this large immigration immigrant population, the careers that people were usually going for, and I know this is going to sound very stereotypical, was like was mainly doctors, engineers, and going into that field. And so one thing that we combated because we recognized this at an early like a few about ten years ago, we started this program was setting up and doing summits where we focused. Um, and introducing about 20 to 30 youth every summer, college-age students, to get involved in different fields and different industries. So we started one in D.C. where we took 30 students there to introduce them to politics and show that they they can be part of this industry, I'm sorry, or part of this field and really be active and, and meet people. Um, and the other two was uh, media, journalism, and really getting in, meeting with people, meeting with high-end producers. So it wasn't that they were just meeting with um, small people or going on tours. It was the idea that showing that they have a they have a voice, they can make a difference, really get in and really change their career and from what we've been told as what is what the best thing to do is to what they can do as Americans. And then the final one we started doing was um, Hollywood. And that's been one of the last hurdles for us to tackle is just getting more Muslim representation, getting more faces on screen so that we're not just being seen as terrorists or the stereotypes of what American Muslims are, just actually just Muslims have been seen like. And I think that unfortunately what was happened um, last week in Chapel Hill was a big indicator of that. Um, when you saw how much the community came out afterward, how much money was raised on uh, different platforms, uh, different clinics that were opened, things that showing this very big effect, and even just who those youth were themselves, and what they did in the community, and how much they gave back, is such a sad, it's such a sad story. But the idea that the community is changing and becoming more political, um, we're becoming more participatory, and um, it's it's been a positive way to see that happening too. Great, those are some uh, excellent insights that actually kind of dovetail with one of the other questions that we have. Um, and uh, so I just want to jump to that one, and it's basically uh, kind of premised on what I was uh, hearing from a lot of you and describing the challenges. A lot of what I was uh, hearing was actually um, how other people's uh, perceptions, or whether it's the, the news media or anybody else, um, is sort of um, are the stuff that's providing the challenges. Um, so I guess the next question I want to ask is when implementing um, any kind of action or campaign or project, whom do you look for? Whom do you look to for feedback or advice, and how much do you take outside feedback into account? So I guess another way to kind of phrase it is how important is public perception um, to your particular work? Um, and I know a lot of you are talking about sort of, um, especially the youth kind of get a lot of pushback. Um, on not being taken seriously, how do you manage their expectations um, of what you're trying to accomplish? Well, as a, I'm a former uh, high school English teacher. That's what brought me into this work, uh, and my work with the Council of Youth Research has been in both after-school spaces and integrating into classroom spaces with teachers. And I think that uh, this idea of public perception and the fact that um, Facts and figures and numbers can all be manipulated in many different ways according to who 
whose story is being told can be a very teachable moment and a way for students to engage in some critical media literacy skills. Uh, and there's actually many ways that a lot of these skills connect back to the standards that a lot of us in the classroom uh, are faced with, the Common Core uh, and state standards. This kind of critical analysis of text uh, and finding a way to uh, state your own opinion about it and back up your opinion with evidence, uh, these are all classroom-based, standards-based activities that students are engaging in that also has a civic element to it. So I think it is important for young people to when they are thinking about an issue that they want to explore, not only thinking about their own lived experiences with that topic, but also how they see that topic being represented in mainstream media or in alternative sources of media, uh, just to get a sense of what the discourses are that are out there, what story is being told, and who, who is benefiting from that story. Uh, I think it gives students a place to understand uh, how a political narrative can be shaped and what role they can play in, in creating an empowering narrative for themselves that they are a part of. So I think it's definitely important to engage with voices, even sometimes the voices that are that seem counterproductive in our society, voices that can be polarizing uh, or sometimes even factually inaccurate, just to get a sense of how information gets out there, how does it become viral, and what do, you, what do we do if we want to take action within this environment in ways that are powerful for young people. So we have a question from the audience that was originally for Alan, but I think this is um, applicable to any of you who work directly with educators or who are educators yourselves. Um, and the question is, how do you engage and support local K-12 school educators in your work? So this actually connects very nicely with the, um, the feedback and advice question. One of the things that we were concerned about as researchers, um, I've only been a student, I've never taught. I have friends that are teachers, my mentors are teachers, but we wanted to come up and make sure that we spoke with a lot of teachers and also a lot of community and civic partners uh, because we're trying to do two things at once, right? We had to understand what different classroom environments are like, uh, both from where students are at but also teachers comfort with digital media, um, comfort with creating a space where you're talking about potentially organizing or social movements, as well as outside organizations that work with students, oftentimes some of the same students in the classroom, but under different pretenses of um, empowering or comfort with digital media. So we spent a lot of time looking at a lot of educators, even though we're spread out, uh, they're doing different projects like this to get a sense of some of the best practices, um, how to incorporate uh, common core standards so that administration's happy, happy while also leaving enough room for teachers to customize and build their own type of lesson plans and broader kind of manipulable uh, curriculum for their classrooms. So that's been important. But uh, in terms of support for, for educators, we're doing professional developments that focus on getting acclimated and comfortable to different uh, technology spaces. Bringing in uh, young activists that can talk about some of the issues and organizing principles and really getting to the core of kind of what this, this potential tension is of these platforms are ultimately tools and we, we need to make sure that students and teachers are comfortable with those tools and then get to kind of the bigger questions of you know, once you know the last webinar you all had, identifying what the success is, what the what the goal is, 
how do you go and bring the people together and the institutions together and create a, a strategy building with the tools but not solely reliant on them. And so once we have a, a base layer of professional development and experience using these tools in, in, in different parts, be it working on elections or looking at issues and coming up with an issue brief to present at a local meeting or to the city council. If it's going externally and building kind of studying prior previous social movements to learn how to build your own social movement today, we want to make sure that educators are, are well versed in all of those spaces by talking to them, figuring out what's helpful, not assuming that everyone's coming through the door at the same space, building that support and then giving educators the room to customize for their own classroom space. Yeah, I would jump in as well. Um, we were working with a lot of, a lot, a lot of educators uh, and school children. Um, so core standards were everything. Um, and we just set them for California state standards because apparently those are the most rigorous. And people in Texas were like, great, meet California state standards, we'll take it. So there's that element, you know, we're coming in and we're doing the teacher's work for them and we're doing it in a fun way, like, I'm old compared to the people who are going in, I mean, they were fresh out of college and so they looked like the high school students. Um, and so you kind of have them saying the exact same thing that the teachers have been saying, but they look cooler. Um, and then, frankly, just working with educa educators who were young, educators who were excited about this new technology, this new media, um, those were usually the ones who opened the door for their whole campus for us. So um, finding innovative educators as well is great. Um, and then back to the feedback question. Um, well, okay, so Coney 2012, if you guys haven't heard of it, went super viral and got super <laughs> criticized. And frankly, prior to that, we did a terrible job of asking for feedback. And, and even at the giving test, we don't ask for too much feedback um, because we want to be innovative and don't go crazy, like people telling you all the reasons why you shouldn't do it. And that's why no one else is doing it. So just get out there and do it wrong and build the plane as you're flying. I, I know that sounds irresponsible, but that worked. Um, but I have learned to be rather gun shy, and I'm particularly sensitive to perception in the media and um, how the news and the bullies and the comment section and the trolls and all that can hijack you and really tear you down. Um, I don't I don't even I mean I, other than working with a PR firm, I don't really know who can prep you for that. Um, because I would say be bold and be innovative and be irresponsible and don't be slowed down, but at the same time, um, it can be super damaging. So uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess the thing I'll say is if you want to make change, especially with youth, you've got to be sexy and doing all the cool things. And I don't do Snapchat. It's Snapchatting. <laughs> you know, whatever the heck they're doing these days. Um, and don't be afraid of what the academics are going to tell you or the, you know, uh, who are they called? The advisors of the board. You know, like you've got to take that stuff with a grain of salt because they're not looking at it and they don't know, they don't have the um, intuition that you have being in the field and being on the front lines and being creative. So, um, I can add to this too because education is a really strong component of what we do. And
our summits that I referenced earlier, um, having educators be a part of that conversation is important because you can't just, it, activism comes with knowledge and you have to have that knowledge to get involved. And um, one thing we do too is we have a program called I Am Change which specifically talks about and goes to universities, so it goes to colleges, tries to work with educators and professors and even younger going into high schools um, to the idea of learning skills and learning the trades to be active. But I just want to address one thing really quickly was that you talked about support and that's something that's so vital for what um, we're seeing among the American Muslim community right now and the stuff and that what they're facing. And so that's one of the biggest things that we do is try to provide as much support as possible, be it from just having reunions and having Facebook groups where people can come and comment. We also find that um, with the American Muslim community and the youth right now, they're building their own support structure and they're beginning they're beginning to like support, create that base um, of of articles and uh, being politically active and being there for one another um, and it's been great to see that that base being created. Cool, thanks for all those uh, the great insights. I think um, what some of you are also pointing to is um, or that we know with you know such uh, diverse uh, and broad kind of backgrounds from all of you is that we all, all of us usually occupy multiple spaces at the same time so whether it's activist or scholar or teacher artist or writer, um, we can simultaneously be doing many different things. Um, so the next question I want to pose is how do we, how do you negotiate um, wearing uh, multiple hats um, when you need to in any kind of given campaign or project? Um, I can address that first mm -hmm. because it's not easy. It's hard. There's so many different people, so many hats you have to wear and I wish that we are were more people involved. And I find that, um, so I'm a journalist by trade and I've been an editor and worked in newsrooms and I found that it's like <laughs> it's that trust of getting people involved and letting people fail. And I think that might be the hardest thing is that when you're working on different projects and you'll see something, seeing something falter and seeing something get a little bit slower than you might like, is like giving that room for people to do that so that that they have that first experience so that they can move on forward. And one thing I really love about what we do at MPAC is that it's really empowering youth to take on big roles. And we'll see them, you know, we'll see people not being as, as best as we would like them to be, but the idea of giving them that support to move forward. Um, and that's just one example of, of small things, of wearing so many different hats is that delegation and, and, and just letting things go sometimes that you can't tackle everything. Cool. Anyone else want to chime in on how you kind of uh, negotiate wearing like multiple hats when you're out doing a specific campaign or project? Yeah, I think I've I've experienced a few different. Um, I think they're tensions, but they're also really interesting opportunities. Uh, being an educator and an activist at the same time is a very um, interesting space to be in because as teachers, we are in some form uh, agents of the of the state. We're we're part of a public institution. And we have certain responsibilities that come with that. Uh, and we're also in a space where we want to empower our students to create their own ideas and walk a fine line between uh, talking about ourselves and our identities and our uh, political interests and making sure that we're not proselytizing to students and that we're giving them space to critically think and to make up their own minds. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that I've turned to, to youth participatory action research as a powerful method because it does give students the chance to uh, go through a process of inquiry 
that helps them to gather multiple sources of information and then come to their own conclusions and develop media products to support their work. Uh, so I think that's been a good way. It's a, it's a way for educators to kind of bridge that divide uh, and give students academic skills and civic skills and help everyone maintain their own identity and their own opinions in a safe space where disagreements can be had, and that's okay. Uh, and then the second tension is between being um, someone who's implementing a program with young people and then someone who's researching that program at the same time. Uh, so I've been involved in writing about the work of the Council of Youth Research, um, and I think that the when you're with a group of young people doing a project, it's most important, the mo most important goal of all is to make sure that the young people's identity development and uh, skill development is growing. Whether or not they achieve a particular objective is not as important as the individual learning process that the students are going through. Uh, and sometimes it's tempting to spend so much time on implementation that you don't spend a lot of time uh, doing the research or writing about what is going on because that takes a back seat. Um, but I've always been told by mentors that it's just as important to get this work out into the public sphere so that others can learn from it and take it in their own directions and make, make it grow. So I think it's important to always try to find a balance between working with the young people and finding a way to make sure that uh, the process that you're going through is public and can be replicated and brought to scale in other places with other people. The, the trust issue thing, um, I'm in a similar situation of thinking, bringing different kind of key stakeholders, I'm not big on that term, but, but folks really invested in this work together. But I'm also researching this as my advisor, Kathy Cohen, reminds me all the time. Uh, I think being transparent and upfront about it is really helpful in going back and forth and, you know, being clear to teachers and civic partners and media partners that we work with, you know, hey, this meeting, thinking about really on the ground building what this curriculum may look like uh, versus, hey, you know, I'm, I'm also going to be writing about this and, and making sure that you capture what's going on. But I think, at least in my space, being transparent and very open about and upfront about what I'm personally trying to accomplish as well as the, the broader goals of um, thinking about youth voice, um, youth access to, to create uh, their own spaces for engagement and activism. Um, being upfront about that has been really the biggest thing to help kind of get around wearing these multiple hats. Cool. Thanks for uh, sharing. I think um, what we're kind of hearing is a lot of the difficult tensions uh, we're working with. And so maybe I kind of want to shift a little bit um, to still talking about challenges, but maybe something that could be seen as more of a positive challenge and how um, uh, how you guys uh, tackle that on. So the next question I kind of want to address is um, how do you manage um, resources and attention when an action or campaign becomes bigger or more visible than you anticipated? Um, and actually, Talitha, you were just kind of mentioning uh, a little before about the Coney 2012 and it went really viral. Um, and so maybe you can start us off kind of uh, addressing that, like how do you, uh, once you're like in a, camp in a campaign in a specific action, how do you deal with um, when something kind of just blows up and um, you have to kind of re-evaluate uh, resources and attention and how to proceed from there? Um, is this being like videotaped? <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, we're live. Yeah. <laughs> like people are streaming into this? Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. How do you manage? Sorry, this is um, you know obviously a sensitive thing that we went through quite a lot. So I want to I want to answer that um, in a accurate way. Um, let me read the question one more time. Yeah. How do you manage resources and attention when an action campaign becomes bigger or more visible than you anticipated? Um, well, it's crazy. Like the the power for something to go viral, and I, I think especially with this, um, is it MPAC? Is that what it's called? Or, yeah. I think I think that you guys are really sitting on a hot topic as well that can explode at any moment's notice. Um, and it's a weird thing that anyone anywhere could be in theory hijacked. I mean, look at like Alex from Target. Like that's so dumb, and it exploded, you know. And so, how do you prepare for that? I I don't even really know because it's such an outlier um, when it happens. But what I will say is that um, the number one thing I've come to value and come to think is worth investing in is a strong PR work. And so you guys asked about uh, feedback and whose feedback do you get. And as much as I hate to say that, like it matters how you're being perceived in the press and it matters how... Um, Hi! This is Caitlin. She's the founder of The Giving Keys. So <laughs> just swinging by. Um, but yeah, it, it's a real thing. The way you're being perceived in the media isn't something cute. It isn't just like an idea out there. It is a thing. It's like an organism that's alive. And so you need someone to manage that um, in the times when you are getting a lot more attention than you normally would because you can say one thing or um, someone else can say one thing and it becomes people's reality, even if it's not true. And I think that that's something that I was really discouraged to see is that um, perception is reality, and I think politicians get that really well. Um, but people's perception of what you, what they think of you, might as well actually be true, regardless of you know if it is or isn't. Um, so how do you manage resources and attention? Um, I would just say trust people who know and trust people who can prioritize and can say this national news story is more important for you to pour your energy into than this local news story or even like a blogger that you personally never heard of. They can be a lot more powerful than Tom Brokaw, you know, and so um, having people who understand the power and where the, the emerging power is coming from and who you want to talk to I think would be uh, recommended and, and really I, I would encourage you guys, like you think, oh, I'm just this little nobody, like you could explode. Anyone could explode. And so like having that backup plan and not getting caught with your pants down or whatever, um, I, I really recommend. So, yeah. Can I add to that? Um, because you're right that we have faced, I can't even tell you how many countless um, things that have gotten huge, things that we didn't even see coming. So if you look back even at like the 2010 elections with the Park 51 mosque, um, we didn't really see that one coming. We were coming into that election year, it was like August, September, and all of a sudden the story kind of comes out of nowhere. However, and there are those other stories where we thought, okay, this is going to be really big, and then nothing happened. Um, I can tell you that there's one thing that we learned from all of this that has been the key to making sure that you can move through these situations and it's relationships. 
it's that relationship with media because I, I am a media coordinator so having having those strong relationships with journalists that I can turn to them and say why are you cover like take these sources these are so much better why are you going to these ones here or here's other positive stories or yes there is the story but and in addition you can do this or having relationships with local law enforcement so that you can reach out to them and say this is happening can you come please support us and make sure that we have those people around us um, and then interfaith community has has really been there for the Muslim community and stood by their side and without those relationships it just wouldn't happen because they're the ones who then influence their convents and their and their churches and their synagogues and that without that leadership it, it's I can't even tell you that it's so sad that networking socializing part, all of this stuff is all part of building relationships and it's so vital to what we do as far as being civically involved and being um, yeah being involved in community activism and organizing it all comes down to that you can tweet you can snapchat you can do all you want to it always comes back to picking up that phone call and having that having coffee with somebody and I would say from the educator yeah. perspective I don't think that I've ever we haven't had a situation where our students work has gone uh, viral I think some of the topics that they have researched have gone viral and at, at those moments, we try to take advantage of that by publicizing the work that our young people do so that they can have a voice uh, in ongoing conversations about important political issues. But what I've found is that it can actually be when we, a lot of times educators feel like they're working in isolation. Uh, they've got a really great project or a great um, campaign going on, and they may not know that other educators in other places might be doing similar things. Uh, and I think that's one of the promises uh, that digital media gives us is a chance to find ways for this work to start building a national network so that when something does start to uh, gain more attention that people that are doing this work in different spaces with young people can start to connect, join forces, and then help their movement grow. Uh, I know that my young people always feel uh, extremely motivated and engaged when they see that people beyond their teachers and beyond the people closest to them are seeing what they're doing and they're getting responses from around the country and around the world to their work. Uh, and I think that the more that we can create a, a place uh, digitally where uh, a movement can kind of be born across different spaces could be really empowering to educators uh, and, to, and to the young people they work with. Cool. I think um, maybe the flip side of that question also is um, alternatively what do you do if your action plan that you've kind of put into place um, just isn't actually gaining enough traction as you hoped? How do you kind of um, renegotiate or reevaluate, um, uh, or do you kind of leave that aside and try to go on to something else? Um, how do you kind of negotiate that kind of uh, that situation? So in our spaces, most of the projects that the young people in this kind of new media participatory space I've worked on have not gained traction and one of the big things that we had to to support our educators and teachers on was making sure that they managed expectations so there would be a sense from some students that no one cares about um, the issue of um, I don't know school closings in my area right they're talking about it abstractly um, but here's an issue here, and Noah's talking about this neighborhood. And I think one of the things that we've had to, to support teachers, and, and in fact students on, was that not everything is going to be big, and you don't really know when something's going to be the biggest story or if it's going to be a localized, um, you know, 
really small in the classroom or just the school cares. And so going and thinking about those type of techniques, techniques of managing expectations and taking what you can get, um, you know, using the lessons of the experience to help inform the next action or, or, or the next kind of organization. What were the people that were not involved that could have been helpful? What was the type of dissemination of uh, information or communications that would have led to more attention? But the, those types of things, that there's a lot to be learned and gained, um, even from actions that, that quote-unquote don't succeed to the same level that, that one sets out for at the beginning. Uh, using those to keep up the momentum and understanding the process that these are this is hard work. You know, everyone here is doing really hard work. It's incredibly satisfying, um, but there are, are are challenges along the way. How do you build from those challenges instead of let them be endpoints for kind of a broader goal? It's something that we've been trying to emphasize here in Chicago. So we have another question from the audience. Um, it sounds like all of you have had great success in affecting change at both the institutional level and through influencing public opinion by using new media and more participatory tactics. Have these strategies ever acted as a roadblock for you, though? I mean, I guess I can say that the participatory stuff you're referring to, engaging in social media and um, even just boots on the ground kind of thing. And I would say the biggest roadblock in that is that you have to have someone available to do it, right? Like, if you, referring back to the earlier question of how, what do you do when you have to wear multiple hats, all of a sudden now talking on Twitter matters and talking on Facebook matters and talking on Instagram matters and um, talking at these networking events matters. And so you have to have humans to do it. Um, and I think that that is the biggest roadblock I've seen is just uh, you're doing great work and you're, you are like you like the uh, person who posed the question, oh, you're having success, okay, great, now you have to find humans who are willing to do it and frankly probably do it for no pay or <laughs> to volunteer to do it or for very little pay. So I, for me, that's the biggest roadblock I've seen. I'd say for um, for educators in the classroom space, uh, the idea of uh, doing participatory projects and working with new media can always be a little bit of a challenge because it's um, there are some schools that that I work with that uh, have very little uh, digital media available for young people to work with. Um, many schools are very nervous about what happens when the outside world enters the school through new media, so they have uh, restrictive zero tolerance policies for students using new media, using their phones, uh, things like YouTube and Facebook could be blocked um, at school sites and that makes it more difficult to bring these kinds of projects into the classroom. Um, but I'd say that, and then of course the idea that participatory projects just take a little bit longer if you're trying to build consensus and if you're more, if you're more focused on the learning and the development that is going on with the young people themselves than about the wins, then if an opportunity does come along sometimes where maybe a meeting with a, a power broker is possible but it's it's on very short notice and you don't have a chance to kind of rally all the young people together and create the kinds of logistical travel plans and you know getting in or out of schools or getting cars to get to places uh, then there are times when you might miss that opportunity so it's not a well-oiled political machine but it all goes back to what your goals are and for us 
and it sounds like for, for uh, the, the Black Youth Project in Chicago, it's very similar, that it doesn't necessarily go with um, political cycles, it's, and it doesn't change based on the new topic. It's always grounded in, in what students are experiencing uh, and focused on their needs, whether or not that's a popular topic at the time, because it's more about the young people uh, and their needs and their um, development than what's going on on the outside. So I'd say, for the most part, um, the new media has been a positive, uh, and just bringing that into schools is the challenge. Well, going off that point, especially since you said political machines and being in Chicago, I'm very familiar with that. Um, it's the idea of also organization and and who is at you know at any given point in time leading different parts of it, right? So a big part of these participatory ideas of that it's not necessarily an adult, a teacher leading this movement that's kind of student-led, youth-empowered, but there does come the time with the limited time which uh, constraints everything that you do have to try to figure out, you know. I'm also doing other classes and other extracurricular activities and who's going to be the, the point person, point people for different events. Outside of this kind of project we're doing in Chicago Public Schools, um, the uh, BYP 100, Black Youth Project 100 group of activists, they've done a really good job of getting together, building a social um, media campaign that focuses on injustices, uh, shining a light to um, young black voices, young people of color doing work in a lot of different areas, but also assigning different, um, not necessarily hierarchies, but areas of interest where they can collaborate and take advantage of these moments. It's very fluid, but there is some structure there. Um, getting the people together and understanding who's responding to this email or this request or uh, someone wants to hear more about whatever is is always just going to be a challenge in general. Um, the other small point um, is these challenges aren't necessarily, in my mind, new or unique to just participatory ideas, right? The, the structures are different, um, things move faster, more people can potentially have a voice, but I, I always want to kind of throw it back out there that these are some of the same challenges that have been around for a lot of activism and movements and organizing for a long time. Who's going to be in control? What voice is going to be out there? How do you organize and build ideas? Um, that there's a lot here that is just modifying some of the challenges and roadblocks and successes of pre previous organizations and generations doing this work. So that's, that, that always has to be thrown out there because there is a sense, at least in some of our work, um, that we're doing something new and that it's not going to be as impactful when the same challenges are just re-emerging in different ways. Um, if I can just add really quickly um, to this because this is something that's become so important just in this last week and something that's been very emotional to the American Muslim community. Um, and, and speaking about new media, and I know that um, right after we learned about Chapel Hill, um, one of my one of our young leaders approached me, and had said, "Well, I really want to put out a petition to the White House about calling hate crime and moving forward." And, and it was funny because I hesitated. I was like, "Well, I don't know if you really want to do this," but she moved forward, which I'm so glad she did. But the idea it was such a difference in thinking for a second there, um, and I'm glad that she took that power and she went and moved forward. And we've seen so much um, in the last year that has shown the power of new media and how it has been helping the Muslim American community, or even just globally, from different hashtags like Muslim Rage to um, 
the one from Australia, I'll sit by you or I will sit with you, um, about the young lady who got up off the uh, subway and a, a young woman who responded back saying, I, w I would have sat beside you. And so you are seeing these powerful movements. And then even some small things, like when you look back at 2011 at the Egyptian Revolution, when I wanted to see pictures of what was going on, I would just go on Instagram and do a search for Egypt and I would have live live like pictures right there. So it has been such a great thing about moving people forward and moving the community and bring it together. And there's also just that really sad negative of like, I've been working on this new project here in LA, which has been the Women's Mosque of America. And I was looking at uh, one of the articles that was done online on YouTube. And there were so many negative comments about American Muslims, about Muslims, and just horrible, horrible, vile, vile things that were said. And I contacted the reporters and was like, you know, at this time when tensions are so high and people are so volatile, maybe this is not the best thing to have on here, but um, it just shows you that the platform is now open and two things, and so many things can happen and it's, it's, it's just really emotional right now and so many things can go viral or move or things like that and I feel like for the American Muslim community they're facing such a very pivotal time right now where just anything can flip and it just goes back to the whole idea that new media is great, participatory politics is great and it comes back to that old school relationships because that's really what comes back to it and then and using these media platforms for having those again or for like them stronger. Cool, so I mean uh, I think a lot of that is uh, kind of getting to the point of what everybody was saying that there's a lot of um, actual people behind uh, most of these actions and a lot of these campaigns um, so one of the next questions I want to ask is what are some strategies for dealing with staff or volunteer burnout um, and how do you keep energy going during a longer campaign or after setbacks and maybe not even necessarily like a specific campaign but even on a personal level or as if you if any of you have taken like leader positions or if you've been taking volunteer positions how do you kind of um, one of the uh, uh, kind of comments we had in the Twitter conversation uh, last week was about self-care and sort of like how you kind of negotiate that as well to sort of not burn out yourself so do you guys have any kind of feedback um, on, on that notion of kind of uh, keeping morale up, um, whether it's for people you're um, overseeing or whether it's for yourself? Especially as people um, who identify with the groups that you're working with, I would say that I personally um, struggle with this a lot too, so it would be great to hear what um, some of you have to say about this. I, I, you're completely right. Burnout is such a high, it's at such a high rate. And being overwhelmed and having to take on too much. I remember when I first started my job here um, about five years ago, my boss gave me this analogy, and it's the most perfect thing I've ever heard. It's like working on this, working with this nonprofit is like changing the wheels, changing the tires on the car while the car is moving. And that's how fast you have to catch up, learn, and then move. And we have struggled with this a lot. How, how do you keep that retention? How do you keep people from not burning out? And one thing I think it comes down to is having those relationships, giving space to say, hey, we're going to shut this off for today, and we're going to take a day to support one another. And all these problems and all these things will still be here tomorrow. It's not, Islamophobia is not going anywhere, unfortunately. I wish it was. But, um, and it's really kind of pour, pouring back into those relationships. It, to me, I really strongly believe, I don't believe in the idea that it's it's business, not personal. I feel like when you are working, you put so much time into your job, but it is personal. And I think that when when the management and the team around you puts back into that, 
it really does help to kind of retain. And then what I said earlier too is that letting other people come on and not hoarding all that and micromanaging, letting other people do the work. And if it fails, it fails. You just keep moving forward. I think that staff burnout is a very, very real thing. Um, and one thing that I was really, like, that really hit me was um, kind of studying about Daniel Pink and his theories of motivation um, and this idea that money doesn't motivate, but lack of money demotivates. And I know it's so hard because budgets are so, so tight. Um, but I have personally experienced that, you know, when I just feel like I'm constantly on the verge of unable to pay my bills and, and do the normal things in life, um, that makes it really hard. So, so finding that balance, if it's at all possible, to um, allow your team to comfortably do the work that they, that they need to do. But the other thing that Daniel Pink found that does motivate is a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning. And, you know, you hear stories of people... I don't know, flipping burgers or, or whatever it might be, and they feel that their job is very meaningless, and even if they're being paid well, they feel that it's meaningless. And so for those of us who are in the nonprofit world and in the um, civic engagement world, I think that that's the strongest weapon that we have um, to combat burnout is to know that um, the the commodity that we're offering for our volunteers is a sense of purpose. And... Um, finding ways to allow people to feel supported so that they can continue doing the very, very hard work of driving the car while the wheels need to be put on it or, or whatever it might be. Um, I think that always coming back to the heart of the matter is what gets me out of bed, even when I'm really tired. So, yeah. Okay, so I think we have uh, time for one more question from the audience. Uh, what examples of successful political activism do you all look towards for inspiration and insights? Uh, I think for a lot of this, my, the students and teachers I work with, they were really energized by the campaign that came up um, after the uh, grand jury decision came down in the Ferguson case, uh, and then after the Eric Garner decision as well. Um, the Black Lives Matter hashtag was something that our students found really powerful uh, because they felt like it was a chance for them to, uh, they, could, they could go on to Twitter, our students could go on and explain ways that they felt that they had either been discriminated against or ways in which they felt that they were be made to feel less than and it was a way for them to speak back to that and feel empowered and feel that they were part of a movement larger than themselves. Um, it helped them also to recognize the scope of how many people are paying attention uh, and what a moment it was for their research to make a difference. Uh, and also, I think the for educators, the Ferguson syllabus hashtag was really powerful because it became a moment for educators around the country and around the world to share resources, multimedia resources, texts, uh, to basically, there, there's material there that could help teach critical race theory classes for the next 10 years. There's so much to go through and read and watch, and I think it's a powerful way for educators to use a, uh, an injustice to actually organize uh, and prepare for hopefully a movement towards greater justice in the future. So I feel like those are those are things we're always looking towards uh, and hoping that our young people can do to make their voices heard. 
Cool. Anyone else have final thoughts on an example of a su successful political activism that you look for, look towards for inspiration? Well, I'll just say really quickly that I loved the ice bucket challenge, and I am not surprised. And I know that that's not so much political; it's more like a fundraising challenge. But I'm not surprised at all that they, oh, the critics, oh, you're wasting water. Da, 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 da. I mean, it was brilliant. It was so simple, so so shareable, and so effective at raising so much money. Um, and I'm just really proud of them. And I have zero criticisms for what they accomplished. And I will say that when you come onto something that is really brilliant, my experience is that very quickly someone will come along and try and cut the legs out from under you. Um, so I, I'm always on the side of people who are doing big things um, and doing it in a big way. I would I would just put a big shout out to the Black Youth Project 100, the BYP 100, just uh, comprehensively thinking about training and educating um, youth leaders uh, on the ground, both of the issues that they're speaking about, but also organizing techniques, right? Grassroots organizing, building that kind of core strength and voice, um, mobilizing uh, around a wide range of campaigns, uh, and, and using both uh, more traditional means of organizing and protest, along with digital tools and tactics uh, to sustain a voice and that can speak to uh, folks on different issues but across generations as well, right, that you get everyone on board even uh, even if people are organizing in high school or have been organizing for 10 to 15 years that it's not just limited to one city or one issue and it's a comprehensive approach that can speak to uh, a lot of the, the different areas of interest and taking advantage of the creative tools as well as the um, action and information that's already available and out there to go and advocate uh, for the issues that they care about. Cool, alright. Well, if we don't have any other last-minute kind of comments, I think we're actually about out of time. So maybe we'll go ahead and Thank everyone for a great conversation. Um, there will be a full video recording of this webinar available immediately on www.connectedlearning.tv uh, as well as with other curated content on the way that you can share with your network. Um, so this wraps up the second webinar of this February 2015 series, uh, but please feel free to keep the energy going on Twitter using the hashtag ByAnyMedia and feel free to follow MAP on Twitter with the username at ByAnyMedia. We'll be continuing this conversation on Twitter Thursday, February 26th, using the same By Any Media hashtag. Check it out at connectedlearning.tv for more info. And if you found this conversation helpful, please share it with your networks. And if you'd like to know more about upcoming webinars from Connected Learning TV in 2015, visit the same website, connectedlearning.tv, and sign up for the email newsletter. Thanks again, everybody, for a really great conversation. Thank you.